You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast that gives you the hives. In a good way. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 148 of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Engel, and what I do on the show is cover the Green Lantern comics, specifically the ones coming out between June 1990 and November 2004. And the ones that I love the best are the ones that have Green Lantern's Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner in them. This time out, it's primarily Green Lantern Kyle Rayner. But it's also Green Lantern, Martin Jordan, and no, not Hal's father. No, it's Martin Jordan, Hal's child from something. As not only are we going to be covering Green Lantern number 148, but we're also going to be covering Green Lantern Legacy, the last will and testament of Hal Jordan. It's a prestige story written by Joe Kelly, which deals with... Tom Kalmaku. Yes, Tom Pieface Kalmaku inheriting Hal Jordan's long lost son. And why am I covering this? Well, it'll become apparent at the end of the show. But of course, I am covering Green Lantern number 148, which deals with Jenny getting her groove back. And by groove, I mean specifically her powers, as well as specifically her groove, as she, Kyle, and the newly re-walking, re-walking, I guess, Jon Stewart, go out to a club and go dancing. It's a fun little downtime issue that I hope you'll enjoy. And I hope you'll enjoy these podcast promos as well, because, well, I have to do something to pay the bills. But regardless, after these podcast promos, we're going to go ahead and get right into our coverage of Green Lantern number 148. back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. A constant irritant. And transpire out! Freak! Two! Come on in the circus. <laughs> right next to the dog-faced boy. True! I have 
come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubble gum. Oh, oh. It's a super prize package worth $9,380. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! And now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer, for Christ's sake! Thank God, damn lucky he didn't kill all of And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now, come on, she let's go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! Julia, shoot. I say shut up! It's a man out! A man out! TwoTrueFreaks.com Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Gachaman! Or maybe... Dragon! How about Tatsuo! Or In the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash-landed on the planet Earth. Our most brilliant scientists and engineers spent the next 10 years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember Our Star Blazers? Or this? The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era, there are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero and the Epion. Or maybe even this. After the desire for blood pools all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Gene, grappler ships dead ahead! It wouldn't be fun otherwise. Let's do it! Or... If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos. Or have you seen the latest episode of... And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew. Home was a pen. Humanity, cattle. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at 2TrueFreaks.com and on iTunes under 2TrueFreaks Presents Anime Freaks. And we're back. And since I haven't gotten any email recently, I'm going to go ahead and skip email. Thanks, everyone, for writing in prior to this. Uh, hopefully, if you guys are interested in the show, please write in. The email address, as always, is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. But since I don't have email this time out, I'm going to go ahead and go right into the show, starting off with Green Lantern number 148. This one was cover dated May of 2002 and released on March 6th of 2002 with a cover price of $225 US and $375 in Canada. 
The title was Hand of God Day 3, Lost and Found. The writer again was Judd Winnick. Penciler this time was Brandon Badeau. The inker was Dan Davis. Colorist Moose Bowman. Letterer was Kurt Hathaway. Assistant editor was Nachi Castro. And the editor was Bob Shrek. Green Lantern Jenny Lynn Hayden is not having a good day. Specifically because she's having to face off against the cybernetically enhanced scion of sound, Sonar. Jenny had the upper hand on the villain, luring him into a deserted section of town, but she let her guard down and got blasted by sonic waves, knocking her into the street. This rises the ire of Kyle Rayner, now known as Ion, who could easily step in and end all of this with his newfound powers. But he has faith that Jenny can handle herself against this second-string supervillain. Super However, Sonar gets the drop on Jenny once again, and prepares to remove her ring and take it as his own. Cal takes this as a cue to finally act, but a swift punt to the plums by Jenny ends the conflict rather soundly and allows Sonar to be taken down. Later that day at Radu's coffee shop, Cal and Jenny are discussing her injuries. Cal tells her that she was lucky that her ribs were just bruised and not broken, and Jenny wonders if this is still another example of Kyle's new power set. Sensing her concern, Cal assures her that despite all of these changes, he's still himself. The touching moment is quickly interrupted by Terry Berg and his quote-unquote friend tapping at Radu's window. Cal mentions that it's good to see Terry and his quote-unquote friend together when we cut away to sunrise over the city of Metropolis. In the apartment of Clark Kent, the chillaxing Man of Steel is watching with interest the news reports of Ion's acts of benevolence. A picturally augmented Asian hooker... Wait, is that... Lois Lane? Really? Lois Lane approaches her house robe wearing hubby and mentions that Ion is definitely lightening his load. Something Clark isn't quite right with. Later at Kyle's apartment, he and Jenny are relaxing as well when a knock on the door reveals Marin Dathalis and a walking-on-his-own-power John Stewart. Jenny and Kyle warmly welcome their friends and find out just what was causing John's inability to walk. Excited by the turn of events, Jenny suggests that they all go dancing. Something John is reluctant about at first, but eventually relents and lets the rhythm take over. Cut to much later that night, on the rooftop of Cal's apartment complex, where he and Jenny are discussing how they had the time of their lives, and it never felt this way before. Kyle marvels at Jenny's stamina, especially after she followed up the fight with Sonar with a night on the dance floor. Jenny says Sonar wasn't so bad, but he did have her on the ropes for a minute. Kyle asks if he tried to take her ring away, and Jenny says it just comes with the territory. The Green Lantern power is much like her own, but there was just something about being able to make the constructs without the ring that she sorely misses. Kyle asks if she'd like her powers back, and Jenny says that of course she would, suddenly realizing what Kyle is offering. Still cautious, Jenny asks Kyle how he can do that, and Kyle gives an explanation of residual energy in her DNA and how he can tap into it. Saying she wants her powers back, Kyle concedes and Jenny has no need for her ring again. Bathing herself in her own emerald energy, Jenny changes the Green Lantern symbol on her uniform back to her classic symbol, and she and Ion fly off into the night sky. Last issue, we dealt with Kyle in some way helping to fix John, and this issue, we see Kyle helping out Jenny. So far, the power he's wielding isn't overpowering his benevolence, and I enjoyed that. Except maybe in the eyes of Superman. You kind of think that the Man of Steel might be a bit... 
concerned with what's going on with Kyle. And we'll probably figure out a little bit more about that in the next issue. Like I've said before, Winnick is definitely working a long game in the story, and I'm interested in seeing where all of this goes. I keep saying that, but it really is kind of a fascinating storyline. Brandon Bardot is another fill-in artist for the book, and I can't think that Chad Bokeman was right that Dale Eaglesham was probably busy working on 150, and they had to use fill-in artists for the books prior to that. His art in the story is very 90s at time, and definitely reminds me of the Mark Campos Mitch Bird art from Guy Gardner. For me, that's not such a bad thing. Plus, Dan Davis inking probably helps with that feel quite a bit. With all that being said, I do have a few minor complaints about the art, but overall I really enjoyed it. Let's go take a look at some of the art and some of the rest of the story, starting with the cover, which is a really beautiful cover. We've had some great covers of the past couple of uh, issues, uh, starting with uh, 145 with the homage to the sort of Will Eisner spirit look. This is just a beautiful image of Jenny sort of blowing a kiss from her hand and the greed jade star energy coming off of it. Her nose looks a little weird because I think um, Bordeaux draws her nose to come to sort of a tip. It's a little different, but the rest of it, her hair and her facial features, and especially her lips, blowing that little kiss, just really looks great. The coloring is also really kind of neat as well. It's, it's a nice uh, melding of the sort of digital coloring as well as traditional stuff. It's It's a good-looking cover, and like I said... Jenny Lynn Hayden is an attractive female character, and she looks good on this cover. Moving into the book on page one, the same can be said here with Jenny's determined look. Plus, she also looks well in proportion. She's not too skinny, but not too beefy. She's very physically fit. There's some musculature there, but she doesn't look out of proportion. I also like that Badeau draws some folds in the uniform. That's a nice touch at setting the images real. If you look... You know, under her arms, there's some folds in the uniform, like she's actually wearing clothing. Uh, you can see it also on her right, uh, at her right elbow, at the fold in that, there's some wrinkles in there. So it looks like she's actually wearing something rather than just being, it just being the artist drawing a person who's a nude and then just drawing essentially a costume over it. This looks like there was some thought put into it, and I, I appreciate that. But then moving on to the book on page two, we get sonar, and it's it's the sort of cybernetically enhanced sonar that we've seen as of recent, his not his hair metal spandex wearing version. And he really looks like he should be stepping out of a Guy Gardner Warrior book. This definitely has the feel of a Mitch Bird, Mark Campos designed character. So Bodeau is kind of aping that or comes from the same wheelhouse as those artists have. Pages 4 and 5, again we get Kyle standing by and letting Jenny get beat up just so she can show how she's as capable of a hero as Kyle. I don't mind the sentiment. I do kind of... I do kind of feel that we've already got this in the book, that Jenny is a competent hero and she can handle herself, and Kyle doesn't need to step in and help her out. We've seen this a couple of times before in this, and I don't really like the fact that Jenny gets beaten up just so Kyle can say, oh, I know she can handle herself. We've seen this before, and it doesn't need to be flogged over our... It doesn't. We don't need to be flogged with it. We know Jenny's a good hero, 
kind of let it go, I guess. But then, uh, again, the way that Jenny ends this fight really doesn't do well to, uh, to promote her feminism as she decides to kick Sonar square in the nuts. That's really the way that a female is going to take down a male antagonist. This just kind of seems to be misplaced feminism here for me. It, yes, Sonar is a misogynistic goon, but really is is a nut shot the best way to take him out? Isn't Jenny better than that? Haven't we seen her take on foes more powerful and more destructive than Sonar and do it in a, I guess, a, a less immature way? Maybe that's what's bugging me about this. But moving on again in the book to page 10, we get the introduction of Terry and his boyfriend, and obviously Kyle, still being kind of naive one, doesn't realize that this is his boyfriend. I'm certain later on in the book, as I know certain things pan out in the book, we'll get to know more about Terry and his boyfriend and what's going on with that. So here's, uh, I guess, the seeding of what's going on between Terry and his boyfriend. Can I say that anymore? Page 11, this is kind of an uncomfortable couple of panels. Um, it looks like Clark and Lois just got done uh, getting out of uh, making a little uh, happy time there uh, because they both appear to be in just... <laughs> they both appear to just be in bathrobes and nothing else. In fact, in the top panel, Clark is basically in his bathrobe with his shirt open and legs apart splaying, and the only thing covering up his groin is the bathrobe, so, uh, yeah, Kryptonian batch, uh, it's not what I wanted in my comic, really. However, this does bring into the, uh, storyline that Superman himself is kind of concerned about Kyle's altruism, or about Ion's altruism, and I think we'll be getting that coming to a head in the next issue. But then on page 15, this is where I really have a problem with the art. Everyone on this panel, as everyone as they've gone out to the dance club, looks way too beefy, especially Jenny. Her pose is very 90s sensualized. Um, obviously, her outfit isn't that unusual for a person going out on the dance floor, but she just looks way too muscular. Kyle looks way too muscular. Even John, in some points, looks like they look like bodybuilders. They don't look like the normal fit people that I imagine them to be. Again, it may just be Bordeaux's art being more stylized and on the lines of sort of 90s artist, but it just doesn't look good and it doesn't look right for the book. And that pretty much carries on, especially with Kyle throughout the rest of the issue, as Kyle looks like he's stepped right off the cover of one of those Harlequin romance novels. He's got his shirt open to, like, the middle of his chest, you know, his pectoral muscles sticking out and everything, and he just looks too big. I don't know, like I said, I, I imagine Kyle to be a sort of lean you know, running back type character rather than this big beefy linebacker. He should be lithe and physically fit, but not not like a weightlifter. And this is what he looks like. And it just 
the artwork takes me out of the book. But other than sort of the wonkiness of the art, I think Bordeaux did an interesting job with it. But there are some points when it gets a little off. But that doesn't destroy the book for me. It was a good story. So that definitely puts it over the top and puts it in puts it in the positive column. But let's see what the ads do for me in this issue. See if there's anything new coming out this time. And starting with the front end side cover, no, there's nothing new. It's the Corn Nuts ad with the Rebel Corn Nuts riding all Easy Rider style on their motorcycles, getting ready to run down a rabbit. Lovely. And again, the sort of stained glass mosaic of tobacco is wacko if you're a teen. Really getting tired of this. I understand the sentiment, but getting tired of this ad. And again, the uh, the GameCube version of Gauntlet Dark Legacy, the sort of oh, third-person version of Gauntlet. We've seen that before. Star Wars Jedi Starfighter, I guess, for the PlayStation 2, where you get to fly a Jedi Starfighter. I don't know if you get to use Force powers, but I guess, yeah, I guess it says you can, so... I haven't played a Star Wars flying game since the old computer, since the old PC, like X-Wing and X-Wing vs. TIE Fighter type games. So I never got the games for the uh, consoles. No idea if this was any good. Got an ad for Starburst with Chaz, uh, the title saying there's more than one way to share a Starburst. And the uh, image on the uh, picture is of two people kissing. So I guess they're uh, passing Starburst back and forth between each other via their tongues, so there you go. You get an advertisement for the game Jack and Daxter, which I guess was uh, one of those... I know it's had a number of sequels, but it's the first time I've seen it for the PlayStation 2. It's this little weasel character and this elfy, spiky-haired anime guy, you know, arguing at a couple of New York City uh, horse-mounted police officers. Okay. Again, didn't have a PlayStation 2, never played the game, but I know it's had a lot of sequels, so there you go. Then you've got another advertisement for another uh, PlayStation 2 game. This is Airblade, which I guess is a hoverboard roller skating game, which is interesting because obviously this year is when hoverboard's going to come out, so we'll be able to play that here in, a, I guess, a couple of months, hopefully. Cool. Get a two-page ad for Dungeon Siege. Now, this was the game that I think I did play. If I didn't play the full game, I at least had a demo version of it. And it was basically a lot like Diablo. You kind of ran around and dungeon crawled and picked up weapons and fought skeletons and dragons and such. It's an interesting-looking game. Uh, They promote it as a role-playing game by Chris Taylor. I have no idea who Chris Taylor was, but I think this was specifically a PC-only game. In the uh, letters page, they get a little side column ad for the 9-11, September 11th, uh, two-volume book uh, for United Rujaw. It's the uh, greatest writers and artists in comics, uh, an unprecedented unprecedented coalition of publishers doing uh, some stories about the uh, 9-11 tragedy. So I've never read that. I do believe Bo Smith had a story in one of these. Uh, it's got an interesting... Interesting little cover with uh, Superman staring up at a, well, Superman and Crypto staring up at a vision of the uh, firefighters and police officers looking up. That's it's a nice cover. I'm not certain if Marvel and DC both went into this, but I think 
One of them is obviously DC because, well, Superman's on the cover. The uh, back inside cover is another advertisement for Tang fruit drink. It puts hair on your tongue, which that sounds really gross. It's got a splaying orangutan, so that's even more uncomfortable. Then the uh, back outside cover is another ad for milk. It's chocolate milk, and who's the guy here? Um, Matt Hoffman. Okay, I should have realized. It's a guy upside down flipping his bicycle, trying to pour milk into a glass while flipping his bicycle upside down. Don't do this at home, kids. It'll only get your head broken open. But that does it for ads, and that does it for the issue. I'm going to go take another break here and get ready for Green Lantern Legacy, the last will and testament of Hal Jordan. I'm so looking forward to this. What is it that makes a superhero? Superpowers like super strength? Or bullets bouncing off your chest? Perhaps the ability to fly? Or can a regular person with the super heart and the brains to match become on the outside what he has been on the inside all along? Hi, this is Matthew Apps, and I'm the host of a monthly internet radio program covering the adventures of Steel, the only human member of the Superman family of characters to wear the air shield. It's called The Armoured Hero Steel, a John Henry Irons podcast. On the show, as well as looking at his adventures, I also take a look at the ads and letters in Steel's book, briefly look at what's happening in the rest of the super family, and even take a closer look at people that are important to the character of Steel, from the people that worked on his book, to supporting characters, including heroes, villains, and even family members. Check it out every month at www.thefanofsteel.com and www.thefanofsteel.com. SupermanPodcastNetwork.com Holy nightmare! So we all know who Robin is, right? Short pants, bad holy insert object gear jokes, kind of weird relationship with an older man who dresses like a bat. I know, right? So not what Batman needs. Thing is, if that's your impression of Robin, then you don't know Robin. I'm Tom Panneries, and for most of my comic collecting career, I've been a Teen Titans fan. Moreover, I've been a huge fan of Robin and Nightwing, so I've decided to take a look at those who have worn the costume in a podcast miniseries called Taking Flight. Taking Flight focuses on the life and career of Dick Grayson as he evolved from Boy Wonder to Nightwing. I'll take a look at his origin story, his time with the Teen Titans, and his evolution into Nightwing. Along the way, I'll also look at Jason Todd and Tim Drake, stopping right after Zero Hour when Dick left the Titans behind. Episodes will come out just about every week at takingflight.podomatic.com, and you can find show notes at popcultureaffidavit.com. Join me as I take a look at Comic Dumb's most famous sidekick, who is a vital part of Batman's mythos. And we're back to take a look at our second book this time out. And by book, I do mean book, because originally this was printed out as a hardcover book. Why it was printed out is beyond my recollection, but who knows? We're going to be covering it regardless. This is Green Lantern Legacy, the last will and testament of Hal Jordan. 
It was cover dated 2002 and released on April 24, 2002 for the hardcover and November 10, 2004 for the softcover. Two years between the original and second printing kind of makes you wonder. The cover price for the hardcover was $24.95 US and the softcover was $17.95. Not quite a bargain. Writer was Joe Kelly, the penciler was Brent Anderson, the inker was Bill Sinkevitz, the letterer was Sean Conant, the colorists were Rob Rowe and Alex, Blazer, Alex Blayard, and the editor was Bob Schreck. In brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power, Green Lantern's light. These are the words that Tom... I face. Kalmaku begins his eulogy for fallen friend Hal Jordan with. He mentions how we should remember him as a hero. Because they shouldn't give nice funerals for murdering cowards like Hal Jordan. This, of course, was a fabrication of what happened that a drunk Tom Kalmaku is relating to his buddies at the local bar. One of the patrons doesn't take too kindly to Tom disparaging the fallen lantern and kindly busts Tom the kisser for his slander. Picked up by the police and driven home, Tom again discounts his friendship with Green Lantern as he falls asleep in the back of the squad car. Back at his squalid apartment, Tom is awoken from his dream, aiding Hal against a golden spider, by a phone message from his wife wondering how he's doing. Frustrated, Tom rips the phone from the cord and passes out once again on the sofa. Things continue to go bad for Tom as he is fired from his job and has to spend his birthday alone amidst his piles of Green Lantern journals. But before he can set a fire to the pile of notebooks, a knock on his door reveals a bowler-wearing gentleman who says that he's the executor of Hal Jordan's will, and he has something for Tom. And that something is little Martin Jordan, Hal's son, and now Tom's foster child. After reading the legal documents, fixing Marty some Cheerios, and puking into the nearby shipping box, Tom and Marty jet off to Carol Ferris's house to have a chat with her. Tom asks Carol to take the kid as he wants no part of it, but Carol declines, even as young Marty introduces himself by hugging his father's former love. But along with the hug, Marty warns Carol that something is coming, and outside, with a now-drinking Tom, we see exactly who or what it is. An imposing dark figure covered with glowing green runes and wielding a vicious scythe swings at the young boy, but Tom scoops him up and rushes inside with him. As the ebon evil rips through the home, little Martin tries to hand something to Tom, causing him to recall Hal's final fight with Mongol and chase the dark demon away. Wondering just what went on, Marty opens his hand, revealing a green lantern ring. Sometime later on the Moonbase Watchtower, the Justice League are asking visiting Tom and Marty about the attack. Fearing the worst, the League asks Tom to have Marty hand over the ring, and in a huff, Tom leaves him alone with the rest of the team. Tom has another flashback to Hal trying to leave for the core when Kyle approaches him and asks just what the heck he was thinking about trying to pawn off the kid on him. Tom yells that he can't stand Hal and never wanted any of this when he's whisked away by Marty teleporting him to an empty area of the watchtower. There Tom tells the tyke that his father just left him a letter saying fix it. Telling the boy he will try and honor his father's last wish, he has him teleport them away again just as the Justice League tried to dogpile them both. This is fortunate for Tom, as the Dark Lantern appears again just afterwards, ripping a hole in the Watchtower wall. 
Realizing that his quarry isn't there, and that the Jordan child has the power ring, the Darklander uses his sight to rip open a tear into another dimension and ask the eerie forms within for more power. Trying once again to solve the Jugger Jordan problem, Tom shows up at Warrior's Bar to enlist the help of Alan, Guy, and John. Alan suggests the solution is to take care of Marty like his own, but Guy is a bit more cynical, calling Tom on his alcoholism and parenting skills and saying that he'd do well to leave him in the care of the JLA. But further discussion is halted as the Dark Lantern attacks once more and Guy Warrior's up to take him down. However, the Dark Lantern easily defends against Warrior and literally disarms him, turning his ire towards Tom and Marty. Marty uses the ring to tap into Tom's mind and to find out what they should do, and the duo teleport once again away from the danger. Marty yells that they need to stay and help Guy and company like his father would have, but Tom retorts that Hal was a murderer and a traitor and wants no part of this. It is then that Tom realizes where the ring took him, the backyard of his family's home where his two children see a brief glimpse of their father before he vanishes away again. Attempting to make the search for solutions a bit broader, Tom takes Marty into space to the planet of Sudar, where they meet up with a number of the Lost Lanterns, former Green Lanterns who survived Hal's rampage. One of the members, Boudica, isn't any happier about seeing the offspring of Jordan than anyone else in the story, but the others feel that he could atone for Jordan's misdeeds. They take him to a Zudarian city, and with Tom's help, they begin to restore the war-ravaged land. Of course, once again, the Dark Lantern pops in and mucks everything up, causing Tom and Marty to flee once more. Teleported back to Earth, Tom yells at the sky, wondering what this is all supposed to be about. That's when the JLA make the scene and give Tom the explanation. Marty doesn't exist. He's just a manifestation of the ring. The Ling make their final move to take the ring and Marty away, but Tom, with some flashback instructions on how it would take down the League if they went rogue, does exactly that. Resolved, Tom prepares to hand over the ring and Marty to the one person who does want them, Parallax. Ready to take the ring for his own, Parallax draws the power toward him when what should happen but... The Dark Lantern appears, and consequences, copyright Allen and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights reserved, get dealt out. While the McFightenstein is going on, the ring finally reveals just what the heck was going on. In reality, Tom was to be chosen by Hal to be the next Green Lantern because he believed in what was right and never let that belief die. And now that Tom realizes that all his hatred of Hal was what was causing all the problems, the duo hug it out and part ways. Then, Tom, Marty, and the Dark Lantern take the ring to the center of the universe and recreate Oa and reveal that the Dark Lantern was actually Kilowog because... Comics. Why not? Crisis verdict, Tom and Marty teleport back outside the Kalmaku house where the two say their final goodbyes. After a final pep talk by Hal Jordan as the Spectre, Tom enters the home where he tells his children not to worry about an item that was broken. Since Daddy is now here, and he's sure he can fix it. That was a long one. And to be honest not really a good one. The art was all kinds of wonky. The story was just a bunch of vignettes with 
perhaps my least favorite Green Lantern character being drunk and then having to take responsibility for being a drunk. And the characterization seemed out of place. The only real reason I covered this is because next episode I'm covering the Green Lantern Secret Files and Origins, the last one of those before they moved into the reboot with uh, Jeff Johns. And the Dark Lantern is an entry in that. Unfortunately, that also kind of takes the Secret Files and Origins out of order, and it'll be dealing with some things that I guess happen in issue 150, so wibbly-wobbly-timey-wimey. Still disappointed. Joe Kelly, however, is known for doing a quote-unquote well-regarded run on Superman. I don't know if you could call it that. I know a lot of people like to tout his work on uh, issue 775 of Action, where he did What's So Funny About Truth, Justice in the American, Truth, Justice in the American Way. I know uh, a lot of people have commented on that and how it's been turned into the, uh, the animated movie Superman vs. the Elite. I've read it. Mm, I don't know how great it is, but Joe Kelly... Plus, he's also very well-renowned for being the person who essentially developed the character of Deadpool from the uh, from the origins, you know, taking him away from the origins they had in the sort of Rob Liefeld mode to making him the character that he is known to be today. Whether or not that's a good thing or not is, again, up to your opinion. This does seem to be the first time that he's written about Green Lantern in any comic, and while it's not bad, it really didn't hold my interest. Um, Probably because it's primarily about Tom Kalmaku, a character that, even when I was reading the original stories that he was in, in the uh, second run of the Green Lantern book, he never really did anything for me. And since I don't know what's going to happen in Green Lantern number 150, I don't know whether some of the things that happen in this book are actually going to stick, specifically the rebirth of Kilowog and the rebirth of Oa. That could be something that could be simply wiped away, and the only reason for me covering this book was because of an entry in the next book that I'm going to be covering. There you go. And really, I don't have any specific notes on this. Uh, In general, it was marginal at best and bad at worst. I can't really recommend going out and trying to find this book unless you are a completist, and... You know, or if you like Tom Kalmaku. Because honestly, there's nothing in this that would make me want to pay the seventeen ninety five even for the soft cover. Now if I could get it for maybe a buck possibly. Otherwise, no deal. But that does it for this issue, and that does it for this episode. I want to thank you once again for downloading and listening, and be sure to come back next time where me and a special guest, someone who will probably go on a lot of tangents with me, are going to be talking about, like I said, Green Lantern Secret Files and Origin number 3, as well as Green Lantern number 149. So we'll see you back next Friday, and until then, everyone, have a good week. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, 
while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too. As long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was The Hives and their song Lost and Found, off their album Main Offender from 2012. If you'd like to buy this song, or buy any song in general, one of the best places to go to buy music is Amazon.com. And one of the best places to go to get music as well is 2TrueFreaks.com. Not because they have music there, but because they have a link at the top of the page where you can click to get to Amazon.com. If you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to go to Amazon.com, then make a purchase there, a small amount of your purchase price will be redirected to the 2TrueFreaks website. It won't cost you anything extra, but it really helps the site out. So if you're ever thinking about buying music, entertainment, games, or whatever else that you can imagine, except for that, because you shouldn't be imagining that, that's filthy, make sure you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com.